Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may find. In the year 3535, Ain't gonna need to tell the truth, tell no lies. Everything you think, do, and say is in Hello the and welcome back to Rumor Control, Alien Minutes coverage of Alien 3. I am John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're moving into Act 2 of Alien 3. But Mitch... So we should touch base on something at the end of Act 1. Yeah, I feel like this could possibly be part of the show. Is that okay? We did Act One. Now we got to go back and take care of unfinished business from Act One. So yeah, let's go back and touch base again with Act One. So what do you got, Mitch? I just wanted to talk about the first appearance of the alien because I think, given that it's an alien movie, it was probably not very exciting or satisfying in the last show to end with. And the alien gets birthed, and that's all we said. So I just wanted to mention what appears to be the two most distinct differences beyond the um, cow or the ox and the dog, which is that the appearance of the alien in the theatrical cut is essentially its head. It opens its mouth. The second set of jaws comes out with lots of goop hanging off of them, and then they cut out of that. And in the theatrical version, uh, we are treated to an extra shot, which is a high angle shot. Looking down toward the corridor, we see the alien on all fours run out of the uh, corridor away from the camera. So it goes from being small to being smaller. And I will say this for the other version, that's a big head with a big inner set of jaws and it's close and there's no sense of the scale of the thing. We're going to assume it's the same size as the, as, as the one in the previous movies. So, I don't know. Any thoughts about that, John? Well, I think it's the, the scale, size of the alien is, is an issue throughout the movie. Um, we, we, I don't think it's very consistent, is it? And we'll talk about it more in depth when we get to those other spots, but it, it's a nicer button on that scene to have it be large and gory and and not uh, running down a hallway, which I can't now, having watched the documentary about the behind the scenes, now I cannot... I can't unsee it as a as a little dog at a suit running down, even though I know it's not what it is. Um, now that it, I've seen those test shots, that's what this, that scene was supposed to be, at least at one point. Uh, now it kind of looks like, and it's not a great effect anyway. So. Well, it's a rod puppet now. So this is pretty much committed to using a rod puppet for the alien, oh. which at least it's there physically. It's a it's composited onto the you know onto the image. But at least it's not completely generated in the computer. Right. Although, I don't know. This just comes back to my fundamental sense of dissatisfaction with the fact that it's this little creature on all fours. You're right. I keep thinking about the whippet with a suit on it. And yeah. I just don't know how menacing that is. I know that sounds terrible and pedantic. And clearly it can destroy all these men. So it must be impressive. But it, I don't know. Visually, it doesn't. I, I, I can't say that it sends me. Think about your first appearances of aliens in the other two movie, two, other two movies. Of course, you get the first xenomorph sighting is with Brett, and it's looming very large over him. Right, extremely awe-inspiring, yeah, terrifying. And you know, having already seen it, uh, aliens doesn't really bother with that kind of a reveal. But we get the menace. We get the after-effect menace this time. We get oh, here's what happens when aliens run amok. That that's so we get people pasted to the wall and chestbursters flying out of their chests and the horror of all that. So here it's not. It doesn't seem as though they stepped it up at all in the showing us the alien for the first time in a movie in this particular movie. What's the first image of the alien in Aliens? Uh, the first image of the alien itself. Yeah. Hmm. 
That's a good question. I mean, you get little chestburster bits. Alien, alien. They start attacking in the. It's just mayhem, right? You just kind of see aliens come out of the woodwork. Is it just as a bunch of them? Yeah, that's the shock. Is that there's more? Well, than and one that's of what them. and that's what aliens. Right, right. I know, is. but I just yeah, didn't so remember. Sense, I was yeah. trying to think through like what the first shot was, and since I wasn't there for all of the minute podcast, well, let's just take it this way. Say you've never seen Alien, and you're seeing aliens for the first. You're just seeing aliens instead of having seen Alien, right? Taking that into account, you're getting a good intro to what the the menace of the aliens by showing what they can do to people. So you you get this horrifying, like mummified people, this horrible woman, uh, or this horrible scene of a woman that wants to die, and then the chestburster comes up. So you, if you're a first time viewer, you're like, oh my god, this is terrible what these aliens can do, and then you get this bum rush of aliens that attack them, right? I couldn't remember whether there was a solo alien moment anywhere right. before they found the people that were mummified. So that's cocooned. very effective. Me, yeah. What I'm saying is for a first yeah. time viewer, that's very effective. Obviously an alien, it's very effective. If you're seeing alien three for the first time and you've never seen alien or aliens, what are you thinking about that? Ox or dog chest bursting and running. I, I don't think it's as, I mean, it's not as good. I don't think anybody would argue that it's as good. Good news. It's early enough in the movie that if it's going to grow or something, that's, there's plenty of time for that. So it doesn't destroy the film or anything. It just, um, I, I definitely would say that this is one instance where the theatrical cut of it is more impactful than giving it all away in the extended version. To me, if you would have done something with the size of it, like they referred to the, what I guess ended up being the rod puppet as the Bambi alien, right? Or the Bambi morph, or what yeah, do they call the, it, yeah, right? The, yeah, the, yeah. So if you take that idea that it's this like calf, the spindly legged little baby version of an alien at the beginning, and then actually do something about, you know, how it grows and, and, and there's some remark about it or somebody sees it. I'm almost seeing the uh, guy from Seinfeld in Jurassic Park who finds the the cute little, right? you know, if you had a moment like that or something, maybe then you're doing something with the idea of the smaller size. Oh, yeah. And then it turns out, oh, God, it's even more menacing than than the previous ones or right. something, but they don't do anything with That's it. True. So it kind of makes it pointless. I still like the ox and I like, you know, I, I kind of like seeing it at the beginning, but in my imagination, they should have done something with it. That would have been what made it better. Um, since they didn't, I agree with you that they should uh, they should just stick with the chestburster and cut away. So with that, we will move on into the second act of the movie. And we're going to look at this kind of sequence by sequence. But even that becomes problematic with a movie that has two different versions, uh, one of which is a full half an hour longer than the theatrical but essentially, we're going to start with the what, what we can call sequence three, which sort of begins with Ripley shaved and showered and uh, winds up in this uh, post-coital pillow talk with Clemens until he's uh, summoned to go to, for an emergency. So in the extended, in the theatrical, this is from about minute 25, 35 to minute 34, 15. And then uh, in the extended version, it's 30 minutes, 23 seconds, and it goes... 40 minutes and five seconds. So um, in one instance, it's 10 minutes long. In the other, it's nine minutes long. And what happens is several of the early sequences in the second act uh, are more or less the same time in, in terms of just minutes. Uh, they're slightly arranged. There's trims on, on all of them. And then you get to a couple of the major sequences in the movie, in the second act, and everything changes. It, it, it completely the structure is altered, stories get added in, so it'll get messier as we go on, but we're going to try to be looking at it in these little chunks of about 10 minutes or so. And you can generally feel that from the beginning of the sequence, a new energy is established or a new dynamic has resulted in the wake of what previously happened. And so in this case, it's very clear because Ripley looks different, right? And, yeah. And she's by herself. And this is this is kind of an iconic reveal. And I remember, do you remember how big a deal it was, I guess, in maybe the promotion of the film that we got Bald Ripley, that we had, yeah, I just, I, there was in an episode of Animaniacs, even, there was a Bald Ripley on the, the WB animated show Animaniacs and that is being flirted with by one of the titular characters and a xenomorph shows up and all this stuff. It was just a, kind of, a, I remember it being a big deal that we got this bald Sigourney Weaver. Well, I think she showed up on an award show or a talk show or something with her hair 
yeah. cut. And so people noticed it and it was obviously during production or right after production when she was growing it back. So it was a big deal. Of course, for some of us, it's not that big of a deal. After all, we had seen the Star Trek movie right. and we had seen Persis Kambata. Right. And so we were used to a beautiful bald woman. So I, I don't know. I think it's that big of a deal. The difference being that while some of us are big Persis Kambata fans, everybody's a big Sigourney Weaver fan and she's this That's true. A-list top tier star. That's true. Where, you know, Megaforce fans like me, you know, <laughs> well, as a child, I, I think, think I've even talked about this. Megaforce, though, didn't she? Oh, she totally did, yeah. yeah. Um, I just wanted to take an opportunity to mention Megaforce. Deeds, not words. But, you know, I, I think I've even told the story on on this show about how uh, kind of horrified I was by her in Star Trek, the motion picture, at age five when I saw that movie. How, I don't know what it, it wasn't the baldness as much as it was having that little jewel in her throat and the robotic voice. But anyway, it's the shock of the new man. Yep, that's pretty cool. So there's a shot though as we um, after we get our first reveal of Ripley in the mirror, and then she's in the shower, and the camera is moving through uh, the room uh, where all the showers are, and there are these things hanging on the walls. Yeah. And I have no idea what they are. I thought, well, maybe they're like back scratchers or maybe I thought maybe they're self-flagellating paddles that these guys hit themselves with or something. But they're they look like they have about the size and heft of a of a cricket bat. Yeah, they're like small boat oars, but about the size of a cricket bat. And self-flagellation would make sense in this movie. Except we don't see it at any point or hear it suggested. But the religious order here could have that as one of its uh, uh, activities. If you will. Yeah. So I don't know, man. I saw this. There's something familiar about it, though. It's like I feel like it makes sense, but I don't know exactly why. But yeah, the, oh, I don't know what kind of showers so, you're hanging out in, but I've never seen anything like that. Well, before, it just so. it looks like an old fashioned thing, like a like very old fashioned thing. Right. Uh, so maybe it's some sort of a um, I don't know. I Maybe somebody out there, I guess the idea of bringing it up is, is perhaps one of our listeners can help us out with this one because. Exactly. That's what we're tell asking us if we for. Know. That's what we're asking for. So so chime right in there. So immediately after the shower scene. We do get our first big change. We move into the same scene as we will in the theatrical cut, but in the director's cut, um, the mess hall scene has a mini, a little mini scene before the that is not in the theatrical cut, which is our introduction to the character Gallic. There's a lot of talk going around that we've got some disharmony here. Any of you guys want to tell me what the problem is? Come on, speak to me, brothers. All right, I'll tell you. I don't mind the dark. I don't mind the bugs. I don't mind wandering around in some cold, wet, damp tunnel for a week at a time. I don't mind anything. But I mind garlic. that the way you feel about it? Yeah. The guy's crazy and he smells bad. <laughs> I ain't going out with him anymore. You got anything to say for yourself? Well, he's going with you. Garlic is just another poor, miserable, suffering son of a bitch, just like you and me. Except he smells worse. And he's crazy. Knock off the shit! You got a job to do. I don't want to hear another word about garlic. For some reason, I remember Mitch, you and I watched, were watching this movie recently and we saw this scene and we both looked at each other, not 100% sure why we watched that scene, where Dylan gets up and goes and talks to some guys at a table and the subject is this character named Gallic, who apparently nobody likes. Because he smells bad and he's crazy. Right. And they don't want to work with him. These two guys who we found out are called, and not because of the movie, but by doing a little homework, I guess they're called Reigns and... Boggs. So Rains and Boggs are complaining about working with Gallic. He's crazy and he smells bad. And um, they complain to Dylan. And what does Dylan do? Well, actually, Dylan, to be more specific, Dylan overhears them complaining and and just immediately intervenes in the conversation, right? Which is shows, I guess, this is an indication of how 
he's the boss, right? He's the, as far as it comes, uh, goes with the social interactions of the prisoners, he seems to be the guy in charge. He's in charge of, of maintaining harmony yeah. because he's talking about disharmony, right? Except, you know, Andrews is often talking about harmony as well. So which one of them, which one of them is more interested in harmony and which, one, <laughs> this is where the, the power structure gets confusing again. I, I wish there was a clearer like line between the wants, the needs of these characters. Yeah. Um, but so this is a scene as you're watching it, you kind of got to wonder, I don't know who any of these guys are. Why are they talking about this? This Gallic guy must be pretty important. And again, Gallic is a, yet another uh, casualty with, of the well, <laughs> of a casualty the, of the movie, but another cast member from with Nell and I as well. Palm again, the titular I. He's the guy who does not have a name in with Dale and I, uh, but Paul McCann, and he is a. I think he's a great actor, and I think that this is a great performance within this movie. And we're getting this. It's an interesting introduction, as you see the rest, the way the rest of the movie plays out. It separates him from the rest of the crew, right? Yeah. So it here's a distinctive character. We've gotten his name no less than like three times in the scene. So we know who this guy is. Right. And yet he's the, he's the main guy they decide to excise out of the movie, which um, you can tell in the interviews in the doc that it was extremely frustrating to him, of course. And to me, it's very frustrating as well. This is the, this is my biggest beef with the theatrical cut is not necessarily cutting out this particular scene, but him in general, John, I agree 100%. The biggest problem with the theatrical cut is it excises this Gallic subplot, which I think is an idea. Then this movie, this movie needs more ideas. I'm, I'm sorry to say it. You, it's, it's not, it's not the smartest movie in the world when it comes to, um, anything theme or, or character or plot. It needs more ideas. It's, it's, it's got a lot of really smart people working on a movie that doesn't turn out to be very smart. But one of the things that I would like to just get pedantic about for a second is just using this as a place to talk about scene construction, because, you know, what's a scene? A scene is an action through conflict, more or less the same time and space. That's and uh, where, where something changes, where a dynamic shifts. It starts out one way and it ends another way. So I guess on that sense. Yeah, it starts out with two guys complaining about a guy that they don't want to work with. And it ends with the boss saying, shut up, you're going to keep working with him. So I guess there's your dynamic change in the scene, and obviously the conflict is we don't want to work with him, and the other guy is, well, I want you to work with him, so they're in, they're in opposition. So I guess it works as a scene in the most basic definition, but they also say the best scenes are the ones that both um, forward plot, character, and theme. So I don't know what this forwards. It, plot, these guys don't want to work with this guy. Well, they have to. Character, well, it introduces somebody who smells bad and is crazy and whose name's Gallic. So that's about what it does as far as character does. And I guess it shows us this dynamic that Dylan is in charge of, of maintaining uh, the harmony of the group. Um, it doesn't do much for plot. It does nothing for plot. I'm thinking, though, it does a pretty good job. There's three, basically three balls in the air character-wise, and I think it does a pretty good job of giving us that. Where the, the our Rains and Boggs not necessarily important characters but we at least they represent the rest of the crew like the general crew dylan like we said gets introduced as the leader the harmonizer of the crew and Gallic is the odd man out and we see they cut away to him nice little shots of of his reaction to all this he's privy to this conversation about him i mean the cliche would have been for him to say i'm right here guys you know like they're literally talking about him right there at the same table at the same table and so that places him within the group. So as far as this being um, thinking of this movie as an ensemble cast, which I think it's we can't really because they don't do enough to give us the full ensemble and flesh out all the characters. Right. But if they were going for that, this scene works really well. But it, that is you're right. That's it, though. I don't think anything else is accomplished in the scene other than some character setup. Well, think about a similar scene in Alien where it's um, Yavakoto. And Harry Dean Stanton, and and uh, and it's this whole thing about we we should we should share equally. You can tell these guys have a little thing going between the two of them, Parker and Brett, uh, and they take it up in front of everybody, and the captain shuts them down. Says you, you get what you contracted for. Right. I'll argue it's a better scene because it gets more character. Identifies these two guys. There's the, they got a they got a, a shtick between the two of them that they always do. It tells us where the hierarchy is. It talks about the disgruntled world that we're in, where we're in a world where some people get paid more than other people, which I think is kind of interesting as far as world building goes. But the other thing is, 
What does that happen? That happens about, what, eight minutes into the movie? Yeah. Six to eight minutes in the movie? It's basically the first thing that Yeah, happens. so right like, now we're 33 minutes into the film and we're starting to kind of have your meet the guys moments. Yeah. Now, there's a case to be made that um, Ripley's going to have to meet the guys, so where better to meet the guys than when Ripley is in their presence, and I'll give him that. But the problem is we're a half an hour into the movie and the only guy she's met is really is Clemens. And so the movie has to start all over again, 30 minutes in to try to orient us to this ensemble that we're supposed to give a shit about. And even if we give it another sequence and we say we're still in the first act, I think it's just the ship has sailed. You know, it's just too late to try to get hold of everybody unless you're going to work really hard at it and that becomes an agenda and it's you know it is an agenda in this scene which gets excised from the theatrical but you know how many more scenes do we have like this where you really get to meet everybody well just remember too though to play devil's advocate a little bit here this is pretty much where we get the almost exact same scene in aliens we we have met the marines have we met them? We really haven't met them. No, it's, we've just it seen is them similar. wake up. It's yeah. almost the exact same thing. It's, it's similar. Yeah, I think one of the missing things that you didn't that you didn't mention between the the similar scene in Alien and now the similar scene in Aliens is charm. Right, <laughs> that's, that's another thing. You could get a whole. You can get away yes. with structural anomalies, like weird placement of ideas like this, like introducing characters so late, and like you're saying, it's. Almost starting the movie over, you can get you can get by with with a lot of that if you have a dynamic scene and it's charming and funny and the drill sergeant right. wakes up and sticks a cigar in his mouth yeah and he gets a laugh every single time that movie ever plays. You're also dealing with the hierarchy of a military group, and so there's kind of there's kind of a shorthand that already exists with the audience that you know they know this guy is the sergeant and he's going to be a hard ass and this guy is going to be a slacker and right. these guys are super strong and. I, you know, it's more dynamic than this. That's Absolutely. For sure. And you're right. The, when they, the Marines waking up in Aliens has an introduction of every character, a quick brief introduction to every character in that scene. So it actually is, does happen before the mess hall scene. Right. The mess hall scene just takes it further and does it in, you know, a little bit more from Ripley's point of view. Yeah. And then things happen, like actual yeah. conflicts are established. And anyway, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess it's not totally fair to compare this movie to the other two movies constantly, but these are this is so similar to scenes in the last two movies that it's almost like they were going for a comparison. Well, my argument to scene. that would be how do you create a third sequel without no, true. in the process of building it have to think about, oh, is this like that moment in the other movie? Do we steer into that or do we steer away from it? I mean, it's a problem is they've been through 10 scripts already and they were probably so completely fatigued by what's a good idea and what's a bad idea that I'm not even sure they knew themselves, you know? I mean, here, let me, let me suggest something. What if this scene occurred before they even found Ripley? What if we were introduced to this prison and these guys are just going about their normal day and we get introductions of characters and then that scene is interrupted by, oh shit, something happened well, that's, and everybody scrambles to go. That's how the Vincent Ward thing starts with. Right. You spend like, Oh yeah, the first seven or eight pages before you even realize they're on a planet, you think you're like, "What am I doing in this medieval movie?" And so, yeah, I think that's totally valid. Yeah. Uh, it's it, this is a harder sell. These yeah. guys all kind of look alike; they're all dressed alike. So there's a lot of pressure on the storyteller to differentiate these guys. And and you're right. And then there's the charm issue, and we can say a lot about Fincher and. I don't think the fact that his movies are charming is one of the things that comes onto the list. Every every so often, his movies will be charming despite themselves, is what it seems. And that's an a, amazing accomplishment to me. Zodiac yeah. is one of those movies. That movie is very charming, I, despite itself. So Social Network. Seven is, is pretty charming in terms of Brad Pitt. He's really funny. It's, it's and, almost like this charm is has to push its way through the like tough veneer and that makes it more and more, all the more satisfying. It's one of the things I like about David Fincher. Same yeah. thing, Mindhunter. Take the television show, Mindhunters. Same way. Yeah. It's so drab and dreary and bleak, and yet 
character pokes through, charm pokes through on all these places, and that's what makes it such a great ride. And that's one of the things that makes Fincher such a great director. I agree. But by nature, no, he's not a charming director. Like is, I think, like I'm saying, it's despite him that the movies are charming. It seems. Yeah. But he's great for letting allowing it to happen. He, at least oh. he doesn't cut it out. Well, I will argue. <laughs> I think that there's one really charming moment that comes up in this scene, which is when Ripley walks into the room, mm-hmm. and obviously the everybody is looking at her and everybody's freaking out and one guy crosses himself. And so there's definitely the tension is in the air and that's great. There's real anticipation and expectation. Uh, And I just think it's her best line in the whole movie is after she tries to thank Dylan for what he said at the funeral that he says, you don't want to know me. You know, I'm a, I'm a murderer and rapist of women and she sits down confidently and says, then I must make you nervous. And I just think that is just <laughs> great. That is there. That's that's Ripley to yep, me. That's the Ripley we know. Doesn't always show in this movie, but that is that is her. Because what, what's she going to be intimidated by this guy? I mean, this guy doesn't get it. She's been to hell and back a couple of times now. I don't think this is going to bother her. Yeah. So her asserting so herself great. is great. Unfortunately, this is followed up by arguably the dumbest line in the entire movie when she says, well, I thought women weren't allowed. I think that's the exact, exact line. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. We've already heard that there are no women on the planet. Okay. That's fine. There's a million other lines beside her saying something she already knows. Yeah. I thought women aren't allowed. What's her intention in that line? What's the intention behind that line? What does she want when she's saying that? It can't be to intimidate, which was what she wanted before. Uh, it can't be to, um, to to seduce or to you know entreat. Um, she's not asking anything of him. She's saying this redundant thing, and it's just like it drives me slightly crazy because I feel like that's a line that anybody, any actor, should have sort of questioned. You know, I thought women weren't allowed. And his response is, well, we've never had any before. Like, what the hell are they talking about? None of that. That's all babble. That makes no dramatic sense to me. Why not? Okay, his question is, do you have any faith, sister? Her answer is not much. I want to know why. I mean, I I think I, I know why. But we could at least, she could at least start letting a little bit of character come out here for these guys to understand her by letting them know, not in specific terms. We're going to talk around the situation, but why wouldn't, why doesn't Ripley have faith? Well, because she's seen hell, you know? So uh, that's what we could start getting character. These guys can start getting a a view of Ripley. Yeah. At least that could have happened. But if you're going to open a dialogue scene with a question and have it answered and then don't derail it immediately, like it's derailed completely. It doesn't make, I thought women were like, well, yeah. Every what does ex- that have to do with every women? exchange is kind of derailed in this scene, and it makes it a, it makes it a just not the strongest scene, frankly. Yeah, you know. So yeah, there anyway. were avenues opened by the question, "Do you have any faith, sister?" And they did immediately hit dead ends. And even the question of you know him saying we tolerate anybody, well, that's not exactly true. And so I don't know. I find this scene to be terribly unfocused. Well, and he says. Not only does he say we to- we tolerate anybody, uh, even the intolerable, is what he says. Yeah, right? yeah. What, wait, are women intolerable? Like, I I don't get the idea that this is a ma- actually a misogynistic group in by by nature. I think that they're a bunch of randy dickheads, and they say misogynistic things. But I don't get that their religion is anti woman, is it? Right. It just is by nature of the fact that there's no women. So what does he mean by intolerable? He's she's intolerable because she's. I did, I don't understand. I don't understand what that means. So we come out of that scene into essentially an exposition scene between uh, Ripley and Clemens. Dylan and the rest of the alternative people embraced religion, as it were, about five years ago. Tincture? I'm on medication. Hardly. What kind of religion? Some sort of apocalyptic, millenarian, Christian fundamentalist. uh... Right. Exactly. The point is, when the company wanted to close the facility down, Dylan and the rest of the converts wanted to stay. And they were allowed to remain as custodians. 
with two minders. I'm a medical officer. And here we are. Where did you get this wonderful sign? How do you like your new haircut? perfect relationship with that good man and briefed you on the humdrum history of Fury 161. Can you not tell me what you were looking for in the girl? Each asks the other a question that they don't want to talk about. Exactly. And so each deflects the other's comment, and they're smart enough to kind of know that there's a deflection going on. Right. So it creates a really interesting tension. In a way, it's the absolute inverse of the old um, Casino Royale scene where Bond and Vesper uh, size each other up by you know, making this big, long guess about what their life is, which I guess is also goes further back to Dr. Lecter and and uh, uh, and Starling, where mm-hmm. Lecter sort of profiles her. So it's the profile each other. This is the opposite. This is the, I want to ask you a question, and instead to indicate I don't want to answer that question, I'm going to deflect it and ask you a question back, which is nice. It creates a kind of sparring that's going on within the scene. And again, they understand each other. Even, even if they don't understand the specifics about each other, they understand why each other wants to keep secrets. Like, they're both in the same boat. They both respect each other's privacy, but they also are both curious about each other. So it's a, it's a little game where they're playing around the edges and not getting down to the to middle of, of what it is they want to know until the end, the button on this scene. That's when it gets very specific and makes an event that's about to occur make a hell of a lot more sense than it does in the theatrical cut to me. I want some kind of lead into this to their uh, their further interactions. So this Are, issue of whether you're attracted to me, she mm-hmm. she says, right? Yep. In what way? In that way? I'm not saying it's great exchange. I'm saying at least it's specific, and at least it leads to something where in the in the theatrical cut, right? We don't get any of this. Yeah, you get you get you do. Yeah, yeah, you get. Oh boy! Yeah, you I get messed it. Up then. But um, are you sure? Because well, you, I have you, it down. You maybe get two extra. You get two extra lines, I think, in the theatrical, in the in the extended than you do. But she definitely no. They definitely talk about. Attraction? I've been here a long time. Yeah, I mean, oh, I've man. been I've been out in space yeah. a, a long time. Um, so can we just ask though about that, like realistically, or do we wait until we see where that conversation goes? What do you mean? Well, I mean, do you really believe that it's like? You know, I haven't been laid in ages, and this is what my, is on my mind here at the prison planet. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. To me, I mean, to me, the sex situation just feels like a studio note. It feels like we got to have somebody have sex in this movie. Ripley's never had sex before. Maybe we should ever have sex. It doesn't ring true to me. Is it the ego of Walter Hill and David Geiler saying, you know, they were we, we had them screw in the f- oh. first movie, Dallas and Ripley, and we had to cut that out. So maybe we're going to get that in here now. Maybe that's a, I never thought about it that way, but it very well could be them trying to go back to the well, <laughs> where the yeah. which was so so mercifully cut from the original movie, and now we're just getting it kind of thrown in. This is one of those situations where sexual chemistry often works better in situations like this and settings like this and stories like this when it doesn't actually come to fruition. Exactly. The the chemistry, the tension, especially considering what happens to him, wouldn't it have been more interesting if it was like, are they gonna, are they gonna, are they gonna get, well, they're not now because he's dead. Because yeah, the alien, <laughs> that, and, and the alien ended that possibility, which is thematically yes. way more in line. I, mean, I agree 100%. See, to me, that would have made his death, we're, we're not even that far yet, but his death would have made more sense to me. Had yeah, a, had a purpose like that. You don't that. get him inside of you because I'm inside of you already. Right. You know, and yeah. that's uh, that's in line with the sort of body horror of the movie. 
So yeah, this is this is problematic. But we don't go there yet. We in fact go to a spinning a spinning industrial fan. Wait, we should point out in a Hitchcockian sort of way, we go from the suggestion of sex to a tunnel. I just want to point that out. I never thought about that. That is true. You're right. right. I don't know if that was a digital. Fincher did say he was making a Hitchcock movie, which Mm. we can talk about as we move through. Uh, But yes, the cold, dead hand of the storyteller wrenches us out of that, and we move into um, another location, and and we have this reorientation cut that takes us to this guy who is singing uh, in the year twenty five twenty five. Yeah, and I think it's um, fitting that we just for a second look at that song which uh we opened with a little bit of it and which i'm going to stick at the end of the of the episode to hear the whole thing but john can you run us through the prediction of the future that um we get in this in this song well you you want me to read the entire song yeah just just like you read it or skim it but like what what happens in each verse i just think it's really interesting uh well in the year 2525 if man is still alive and woman can survive, they may find. That's all it says. Okay. Next. In the year 3535, ain't going to need to tell the truth. Tell no lie. Every, everything you think, do, and say is in the pill you took today. Okay. So we're taking drugs. Taking so pills. in the year 4545, you ain't going to need your teeth. Won't need your eyes. You won't find a thing to chew. Nobody's going to look at you. Okay. In 5555, your arms hanging limp at your sides. Your legs got nothing to do. Some machine's doing that for you. It's a little Wally reference there. Um, yep. In the year 6565, you won't need no husband, won't need no wife. You'll pick your son, pick your daughter too, from the bottom of the long glass tube. Okay, Brave New World. Seven, 7510. Here we go. This is what we our guy is singing. He's singing in yep. the year 7510. So here's where we are. If God's a coming... He ought to make it by then. Maybe he'll look around himself and say, guess it's time for the judgment day. Well, there you go. Yep. Here's your apocalyptic cult. Yep. Anything else? Uh, well, 8510, yep. God shakes his mighty head. Uh, he'll either say, I'm pleased where man has been, or tear it down and start again. In 9595, I'm kind of wondering if man's going to be alive. I think he was yeah. wondering about that uh, a while, a couple millennia ago. Uh, he's taking everything this earth can give, and he ain't putting nothing back. Now it's been 10,000 years. Man has cried a billion tears. Probably more than that. For what he never knew, now man's reign is through. But through eternal night, the twinkling of starlight so very far away. Maybe it's only yesterday. In the year 2525, if man is still alive. If woman can survive. We're back to that. So that's I think that that is a very fitting song to describe Alien 3 and to describe sure. Fincher's attitude toward it. It's pretty hopeless. Yeah. Uh, there's a God involved who's not real happy and there's an end of the world uh, via, I don't know, the dehumanization of the future and the stupidity of man. And uh, yeah, that seems to sum up Fincher's philosophy in Alien 3. Right. Yeah. Everything's there for a reason. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. And it's got a, you know, I'll be honest, when this starts in uh, and this guy's singing, this this gives me this kind of gritty cyberpunk kind of feel like something about this modern or contemporary music that feels fitting here. Where sometimes in a science fiction film, I'm like, I don't want, I kind of don't want music because it just never quite jibes with what my idea of that time period is. Yeah. But here it really works. It does feel like a song from the future, even though it's a song from the past. Um, anyway, I just, uh, I've always found that a good note to come into the scene on. I always find the scene reminds me for some bizarre reason of that scene in The Hunger where the dude is roller skating with the boom box under the, under the tunnel in Central Park. Yeah. And then the vampires come and get him? Yeah. I don't know why. I don't, I don't remember the song. What was the song? I don't remember the song either, actually. <laughs> I just remember like the image, and it just has a similar, I don't know why, similar, uh, I don't know, British British cinema 80s kind of vibe to it. Right. So with some tricky editing, we find the guy finds some slime on the ground that looks like it's uh, 
part of a, you know, shed skin of an alien. And then there's a hole that he sticks his head into or that he starts to stick his head into, right? Now here, um, this is our dog owner. Right, this is our dog owner. So in the theatrical cut, he's wondering what the goo is, the skin is. But when he looks into the hole, his assumption is that it's his dog. Is that good or bad? Uh, if it, if the dog is in the movie, it's pretty good. It's fine. It gives me a reason to at least believe that this guy is gonna stick his head in the hole, his head in the dark <laughs> ass hole after seeing some what, slimy skin. What happens in the theatrical version? In the you mean in the director? I mean cut? in the director's cut. Yeah, he's just kind of intrigued by what's in the hole. Yeah, he just keeps looking down what's the hole. What's in the box? Yeah. <laughs> what's in the box? <laughs> yeah, and then he gets um, smashed, okay. zapped by the alien, and then he goes flying into this. Uh, incredible! <laughs> this incredible spinning uh, fan, and we get a shot of gore splattering towards camera, drenching it in red. Now, it—I will say this is total nitpickery here, but it's really easy for him to just fall down and roll into that fan. It's true. Like, would he like? Would he? Would he have been so relaxed singing songs if it was so easy? Like, it seems to me that he'd have some kind of hardness on. Or There's something. no balance at work, but he's lost all balance once the alien zaps him in the head which i guess brings us to this next question of what's the alien agenda because it doesn't seem to want to it's just it's just killing people right yeah yeah we we learned long ago long ago not to really look Don't into think the about aliens it. agenda right it just wants to it wants to breed that's one thing we know it wants to breed and that's really all there is to it right and in this movie in later scenes does seem to suggest a certain a feeding like where we talked about whether or not that was the, you remember that right. was the assumption about alien right right we definitely do eaten. see it what seems to be feeding it, it. it's definitely eating folks in this movie it yeah. looks like to me so from that we move to this uh, post coital scene that kind of finishes out um, the sequence um, and we yep sure enough have found out that the that Clemens and Ripley have slept together okay so here's a here's a sex scene cliche that I don't particularly like. Did they really? So they decided midday to bone. They go back, and they went to sleep. They took a nap. <laughs> like, do you? Why is he laying like that? What is going on here? It's a weird thing how the sex scenes are blocked. And I think sometimes people just fall into cliches. Yeah, it's like, oh, they've had sex and now they're laying back to back. Or it's like, actually, what would have happened is they would have gone into a room and had sex and then gone on about their day. Right? It's like it doesn't make much sense. Unless this was an overnight thing, to have which how would they get away with that? Languid, perfect it afternoon. It's, I, I guess. Know, I don't so know. romantic. Maybe it was an overnight thing. Maybe I'm just assuming it was no, an afternoon No, it's in the time that it, I, I, I just sort of assumed that in the time that it, yeah, yeah. Breakfast? Took for that guy to get killed. They had breakfast. They had a conversa- post-breakfast conversation, midday quickie, conversation about the quickie. <laughs> Neither one, of them, neither one of us is going to tell you our secrets, and yeah. even though I have a barcode on the back of my neck, I'm not going to tell you the significance of that. Yeah. And she had a terrible dream all uh, that... Um, well, she's lying about that. She's, she just, she's tell, talking about dreams because she doesn't want to tell them specifics. Right, right. Anyway, I don't know how I feel about this scene. I will give it this. It's a bonding moment. Yeah, and the bonding moments are great, and the bonding moments are um, the one sort of decent thing you can hang on to in terms of a you know human thing you can hang on to. And I really I like the relationship between the two of them. I like the chemistry that they have. Yeah, I would I would love it if he made it to the end of the second act. I would like to. I, I mean, again, I would like all of it better had they not had sex. And I think I wonder if it isn't being a child of the '80s and having seen innumerable pointless sex scenes in movies that I cringe at this the most where I, I really, really, really want sex scenes to be earned. I, I just really want them to be earned. I don't just want them to be there because, Hey, look, these two are getting along Hey, they haven't had sex in a while. I mean, I don't know if that really does anything for the movie or Ripley. Well, at least you don't have the meat scene. You know what I mean? At least we cut out of them. We don't see them kiss and we don't see them Oh yeah, the, have sex or with anything. some kind of like pulsing music in the background. Yeah, yes, so we are spared that. So that's interesting that we get before and after and not during, which is fine. But it's still an odd. It's an odd idea because I don't know what I don't know what you really get for it. I think this scene goes on a little longer in the extended version. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's a little bit more conversation between the two of them. But as is so often the case, 
Once again, Clemens interrupts. He yep. he he is. That's his part of his job in this movie is to interrupt and and force the plot to go somewhere else. You mean Andrews? I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, Andrews. Yeah, okay. yeah sorry. Yeah. Clemens is interrupted by Andrews, right? Yes. Every time, yeah. Every time they're getting to something, <laughs> yeah. it's almost like a yeah. It's, I know. It's, it's almost funny. like a bit of a parody. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So um. So he's called away, and we do get this little silent private moment. Uh, on Ripley's face that's again nice it's human it 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 helps me to at least feel like I'm kind of on the journey with her but of course as the murder scene we just saw shows we're not really in her head the movie is really going to be directed um, the story is going to be directed by the storyteller and not by the experience of Ripley yeah it's melodrama it's not drama and I guess I guess that's okay I don't know uh, so that sort of brings us to the end of the third sequence uh, in the movie, and um, we move on into the aftermath of this murder. So what I've got here for sequence four is basically from the point that Clemens goes to the murder scene and ends with Ripley being rescued by Dylan. And yeah. so that feels to me like a sequence. But of course, it's you know it's it's different in both versions because in the theatrical version it's relatively short it's about seven and a half minutes and in the extended version because there's some extra stuff added into it it's about 12 minutes to move us through that same series of events so that's just kind of to keep everybody on track where we're going it seems to me that this scene of this inspection i mean it puts clemens in this position of being kind of an investigator right yeah and i know that i feel a little concerned about what Ripley's going to do in the movie because we just leave her lying there in bed, you know? So I'm kind of hoping that something's going to happen, which of course it will, but we definitely move the story away. So we're we're, we're kind of doing this A plot, B plot, which is, I guess, Ripley's the A plot. And anytime Ripley's not around and we've got prisoners interacting, that's kind of the B plot, but it's not that simple because then we've kind of also got the C plot, which is the pick 'em off stuff that that does it fe- always feels very disconnected to the rest of the movie, you know, because it's not usually rooted in any kind of conflict. Does that make any sense? Yeah, um, I guess my question is, do we need Clemens to go to the site? I mean, we've seen what happened. Do we need Clemens? Do we need to get the whole scene where they're talking? Uh, Aaron Andrews and Clemens talking about what happened. Talking about this guy's. Oh, this guy was a moron i can't remember what he calls them well they wind up going to andrews's office anyway yeah right so i mean they could very well there could be some sort of uh bit of the prisoner you know uh some identifying uh thing on the desk you know in a plastic bag or something whatever anything that that shows okay they've been there what here's what we're talking about is that this guy got killed but instead of going with clemens from this from the sex scene we go with Ripley from the sex scene where Ripley then she says, oh, this is odd. Somebody just died. And maybe also Clemens should have made it seem a little bit more strange that that happened. It's a little weird that he's like, oh, some guy got diced up. I'll be back. You know, it it's kind of weird. It does feel like it happens every day, which it clearly doesn't because they have a very small amount of people living here. So it's not like people die every day. So instead of cutting to this. The fact that this guy died clearly piques Ripley's curiosity, and then she goes and starts investigating. Go with Ripley and investigate, not this um, just conversation about something we've already seen. Yeah. Is it to give us a stronger sense of, of Aaron in charge of security? Is, is it to give us his role? Mean, uh, to move us all, closer to him? If that's what it's for, it never did that for me. And um, a lot of it feels redundant. I yeah. mean, like I said, we've seen the gore. We've seen... What it's happened? We don't the need them too. discovering it because we already know. But how the, how this is going to disrupt their power structure is interesting. So take it to the office. Right. Let's just go ahead and go with Ripley. Ripley's going to go, you know, what we see her do next. That should be the scene that came after the sex scene, in my opinion. I mean, the one piece of investigative work is that he sees the acid on the inside of the uh, but the tunnel, right? Right. And he's seen the acid... In the ship, right? Was he with Ripley? She saw it. She saw it. We don't know whether we don't know him. whether he saw it. Now, had he seen it, this would be a huge alarm. 
Like, okay, here's a second place where I've seen this thing, and she's keeping a secret from me. Clearly, this has to do but with the But the way secret, that it pulls nothing, that away from him, doesn't that suggest he's figuring something out? It suggests it, but does it? When they go to the next scene where Ripley is searching for the data recorder, mm-hmm. um, that's where the scanner is, right? The medical scanner? There's The, med- the medical scanner is right there for us to see, or what she, what she yeah. uses as a medical scanner later. So she just didn't think about, oh, I've got one in the ship. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. It was just, I'm sorry, but the, you're never going to convince me that it wasn't just a sadistic seen that autopsy there was just no need for it at all well at least she gets chastised in this scene uh after being disturbed by clemens that she shouldn't be walking around by herself yeah but no <laughs> she's able andrews to is gonna be mad uh but so. she's able to do it without any i don't what's he chastised for he left her alone it's if you're gonna keep somebody uh, uh in a room or out of a certain area you probably better be supervising them to make sure they don't do that so but uh, he, the whole like you can't be the whole thing should have just been cut from the movie. But in this scene, we do find out that he did indeed see the acid burn on the cryo mm-hmm. thing. Yes. So and so we just didn't know whether oh, he, had seen he did it before. Yeah. He says to her, "That's right. That's he, right. You're he right." He says to okay. her, "You saw it." You know. So, um. So I guess that sorry thread. Sorry gets everyone for tied up. Yeah. That's my. It's, it's hard to keep both of these versions stri- straight, man. Yeah. It's it's it it ain't easy. I just feel like. It's not, yeah, it's not very strong. Like, if he saw that crazy-looking thing that you've never seen, nobody's ever seen that kind of a burn in something before. And if he sees it again, he's going to be like, you better start telling me shit now. Yeah. What is going on? Because clearly, a guy has died. It's weird that he died, which, again, it should he, be more weird. And that's that the, the point died. of the scene, right? I mean, yeah. he said he wants to know He wants to know from her what's happening. Right. So he, he, he presses her on it yet again. But, but but he also lets her obfuscate. Yeah, she wants to access the flight recorder. I, it, it just doesn't feel strong. It feels I don't know. At some point, you got to get to brass tacks here. So with her saying she wants to find Bishop and use that, which is going to bring us ultimately to the reappearance of Bishop. Uh, in the theatrical version, we cut straight to Andrew's office. But in the supplement or in the extended version, we have another scene. Right. It's a very brief scene of kind of the the preparation for this task of going and searching the tunnels. So we get Rains and Boggs again. We get Gallic is going with them. So what is this Dylan's idea of a joke? <laughs> He's going to say, hey, take uh, Gallic with you, you two guys that hate Gallic. <laughs> like, why did it specifically send them together? That's I, I told funny. you you had to work with him. Yeah, I guess he's making that point. That's good, though. Actually, that's good character. That's... That's boss stuff. You and, know? He, and he says, you're going to, they make this reference to you're going to light candles for them, right? Yeah. So yeah, the gonna, candle so thing. So they're going to go light a bunch of candles um, so that they can explore the area. Uh-huh. So once again, like, why don't they have flashlights? Because it's, because um, we're still got one toe in the medieval script. Is that it? That's it. It's Why would it. they only have candles? I mean, they clearly have lights and the electricity in this place. Yeah, it just seems like. Yeah, it's not not the best. Um, we have a uh, quite a long scene with um, Clemens in the extended version here. Clemens goes to see Andrews once again, um, and we get a dippy bird. We get a dippy bird. But that's all in the theat- in the um, extended version. This scene, the, the the as is so often the case, the beginning of this scene. Uh, is cut off before for the for the theatrical version. So it's almost like the first choice these guys made when we're gonna okay, we got to shorten this movie. Well, we're gonna go in and we're just gonna cut off the beginning of every scene. Well, there is I okay, I can kind of understand if the beginning of your scene is offering like coffee. Yeah, cut it, it off. Yeah, who gives a shit? Yeah, like what we don't we already see these guys. Like if if we were meeting or seeing two people interact for the first time, you might want to establish some sort of hospitality oh i when i bring people into my office i do offer them coffee and then i berate them but <laughs> right. since we've already seen <laughs> since we've already seen their dynamic twice we don't need that so i that's a good cut yeah i think you're right i think you're right it, it keeps things moving right along it cuts in on the conflict between the two guys and that makes a that makes a pretty major difference i think yeah listen to me you piece of shit you screw with me one more time i'll cut you in half 
I'm sorry, I don't think I understand. At 0700 hours, I receive word from the network. I may point out this is the first high-level communication this installation has ever received, to my knowledge. They want this woman looked after. They consider her to be very high priority. Why? I have no idea. Why did you let her out of the infirmary? This accident with Murphy's. What happens when one of these dumb sons of bitches walks around with a heart on? I'm a doctor. You're the jailer. We both know exactly what you are. Sit down. I think it might be better if I left. I find you unpleasant to be around. You do? Isn't that lovely? Consider this, Mr. Clemens. How would you like me to explain your sordid history to your newfound friend? For her personal edification, of course. Now sit the hell down. I don't like you. You're unpredictable, insolent, possibly dangerous. You question everything. If I didn't need a medical officer, I wouldn't let you within light years of this operation. I'm eternally grateful. Keep your sarcasms to yourself. Now, is there anything I should know? About what? About the woman. Don't play with me, Mr. Clemens. You spend every second you can with her. And I have my suspicions that not all of your concerns with her are medical. She said anything to you. Anything about where she's from, what her mission is, what the hell she was doing in an EEV. She told me she was part of a combat unit that came to grief. Beyond that, I assume it's all classified. I haven't pressed her for more. That's all? That's all. You sure? Yes. Nothing more? No. But what we're learning, so what we learn in this scene, well, it's not what we learn, it's what they learn. Again, because we know that Ripley is important. We is there anything that we learn here in this scene? I mean, maybe I'm forgetting. But what is it? Because really it's just that Clemens learns that's that Ripley is very important. So yeah, that they've that gotten a, they've to gotten his, a notice from the company that they gotta take right. care of her. Right. So we know that already. I mean, we already know that. So shouldn't there be I don't know seems to to wrap a, a a big scene like this around that bit of information and then and then there's this half-assed leverage thing where i know what your secret is i bet she doesn't know what your secret is i suspect you guys are having sex and so if you don't want me to tell her what your secret is you better play ball with me and why what, what is this soap opera in the afternoon i mean this is this is so super lame <laughs> Especially when yeah. we find out what his secret is. Like, okay, maybe it works for now because I'm going to find out, you know, he murdered 30 children or something. But we, we come to find out that he didn't murder 30 children, you know? No. Uh, he fucked up uh, as, a, as a drunk doctor. And why is that it, even th- a That's big something secret? that he can, uh, that Andrews can hold over him seems to me to be a little I mean, suspect. Ri- let's remember Ripley's baseline understanding of this guy is her assumption of this guy was that he was a prisoner in this prison therefore her baseline assumption was that he was did he must something have done wrong. something wrong so yeah why is the idea of him having done something wrong such a secret she already thought he did something wrong yeah yeah so it's yeah. A, it's a scene that that is not in any version uh particularly interesting you get okay clemens uh aligns himself with ripley very strictly here like by taking her side and lying to him to andrews we are now establishing that clearly he is her her greatest ally but we already knew that like i don't need anything to happen to tell me that he's he's already been her ally i don't know the fact that uh, the fact that he gives her advice on how to find bishop is enough for me to know i mean there's any number of ways so yeah, that office scene kind of makes no sense either. So maybe you do have the aftermath of the murder and these those things all happen there and you cut the office scene and at least you have a scene with some gore. And stuff right. It, or, you know? it, well, it's weird because she's already gone to the ship once and Clemens has found her there. So now 
then you go to the office. Now she's poking around to get the bishop thing, right? So, and of course, somebody's going to find her here too. Uh, so at least we see bishop. We see the bishop, um, the droid uh, here. So that's pretty cool. So, she, oh, so yeah, at least yeah. Ripley is doing something now. She's got an agenda and she's on her way to uh, to, to get that. But it doesn't turn out well for her. No. And this becomes the big thing, the, the climax to this sequence uh, as she's moving out of this extraordinary set with giant characters on the walls. I, I do like this set, even if it doesn't make total sense to me. And it reminds me of the, the nuclear container in yeah. uh, in Brazil. It, it reminds me of a little Brazil, a little Robocop maybe. Like I like it. But yeah, so she gets of course headed off by some prisoners. They they surround her. And you know what I think that this scene really needs right now is some rape guitar. <laughs> Okay, this is just objectively the most tasteless choice in this entire movie to me. Not necessarily that there is a rape scene. It's that it comes with some badass guitar riff. I yeah, mean, what like a let's have a good time and let's rape her. You know, and even him putting the goggles on. Oh, there's the the clearly the intention is to move us into the perspective of the rape, the rapists, not not yeah. not the victim, right? I think so. Yeah, sadly. You know, no surprise that Fincher knows his way around sleazy stuff. Like when he needs to do that, he can do it. I I still remember being completely shocked by the lake murder in Zodiac, mm-hmm. which is filmed with all of the finesse of of a drive-in exploitation movie. I mean, it's so ugly and just you know, and so he can do it. He's he knows he's he's good at it, right? Yeah. Um. So we get this. This really unpleasant uh, attempted rape with badass music that's ultimately interrupted by Dylan showing up, who rescues her. So, mm-hmm. you know, once again, it's like... Don't care for that either. I, I really honest. have to have the Ripley get rescued by, by, by well, people. Have we uh, ever... I mean, do we really need Ripley ever being rescued? I'm trying to remember the... Ripley does the rescuing in Aliens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't get the scene at all. Um, she gets a little poetic justice at the end where she gets to, she smacks this one guy. She punches a guy yeah. that's already on the ground, right. which is, okay. And I remember that particular shot was in a lot of promotional, like I feel like I saw it on TV a few times. Um, but yeah, so I guess the idea behind this scene was female endangerment, right? Like there's that little underlying idea in this movie that they were trying to establish that I never think they successfully do. Uh, you know, solitary woman among men, uh, potentially dangerous men, men that cl- that claim to have raped women before. And so here we get that idea coming to fruition, I guess. That's the idea behind the scene. I'm trying to get to why this scene's even in the movie at all. Because it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a cheap way to put her in danger and to maybe bond her a little bit with Dylan because Dylan says, you don't want to know me, you know, I'm the raper of women, and then, oh, how ironic, he saves her from a rape. He's got to re-educate these guys. So I suppose him kicking the shit out of them now means everybody can go back to normal after, because they apparently do. Like, everybody kind of goes back to their normal, (laughs) the normal status quo. This doesn't change anything. That's right. As far as the dynamic of what goes on in the prison, other than some black eyes. I think yet it's another example of, of how the sequences in this movie tend to end on visceral emotional um fireworks you know where the energy goes up and mm-hmm. then the next then the energy tapers off for the beginning of the next sequence but this does not help the plot one bit no i mean the only thing that helps the plot is that she got bishop and mm-hmm. she's taking him to go you know she's taking him with her to go plug him in yeah that's a plot point yep. this rape thing is not a plot point no uh, and I guess, you know, maybe it's a character point for Dylan that now he's going to help her out. I don't know. But that's what brings us to the end of, of the sequence uh, of uh, of Alien 3. 
and probably to the end of this episode. Yeah, I think this episode's gone on long enough. I think that we can move on. We can we can move on to the next sequence of the next episode and see see where we get from there. I think saying that it's gone on long enough is terrible. <laughs> um, maybe I'll cut that out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I suppose you're right. It's just the mood I'm in at this point, I guess, and uh, after this particular scene. But okay, join us on the Facebook page. Post some answers to the question of what the hell those things are that are hanging on the wall by the shower. Uh, and any other thoughts that you might have. I'm sure most of our thoughts will not have to do with the things in the shower. I imagine we're going to hear some thoughts about some of the other things. And that's what we're here for. That's what we want. Give us your worst. I don't know whether it's Judy or Punch that gets punched, but we'll be the one that gets punched. So you guys, you know. I assume Punch punch punches Judy. Maybe so. So we're Judy. You guys be Punch, and you (laughs) you can let us have it for uh, not being too kind to Alien 3 today. But I, I, uh, it's going to get better. Is it? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Because I think we're gonna we're gonna be moving on to arguably the most interesting subplot in the movie that gets oh. cut out of the theatrical. Oh right, version. the one that's not in the movie. Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So we'll see you soon. All right. In the year twenty five twenty five, if man is still alive. If woman can survive, they may fly. In the year 3535, ain't gonna need to tell the truth, tell no lies. Everything you think, do, and say is in the bill you took today. Yeah.